Welcome to the Medical Mnemonist Podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, take a journey into the top techniques for medical mnemonics, study skills, board exam tips, and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Deliberate practice is not just a way to become an adequate learner, but it's a way to master something, to become an expert in something. And there really doesn't seem to be a much stronger way to really gain insights and gain skills in something than to use this process of going from a naive skill or naive intellect in topic to a purposeful desire to learn it and then to a deliberate practice of betterment. It's consciously identifying your weak points and working on specifically those to become better. So welcome back to another episode, and I know that we have covered deliberate practice in the past, but it's been quite a while. I want to say it was probably covered in maybe episode 16 or 17, somewhere around that range, maybe again in the 20s, And we did actually have the honor of having Dr. K. Anders Ericsson on the show in the past for an interview to discuss his book, Peak, The New Science of Expertise. And it was just a great book. I was a little starstruck on this one when I was able to have him come on the show and discuss it with us. And unfortunately, he passed away last year, June of 2020. So I wanted to do another episode on this. And really go into more detail about his book and about the science than we previously did before. In previous episodes and in Read This Before Medical School, we really focused on just the process, the the four to five step process, depending on how you want to divide it. And we're going to cover a little bit more about the total research done on this practice to really entice you to try to use this if you're not already, or if you are trying to improve your deliberate practice. So first off, if you are maybe stuck, if you've plateaued on something, and this can be your studies or a workout regimen or some other skill, and you might just think at that point, all right, this is my level. I'm stuck right here. I can't progress any further. We'll prove to you that that's not true, that you can progress, that you can get better if you use these tactics properly. And it's proven in, in society all the time. From gaining pitch-perfect tone to chess masters to military personnel, even physicians all use this style of learning to some degree or another. It might go under different names, but basically this conscious betterment, this working on your weak points, specifying the weak points, setting your goals, and really trying to gain a newer level of understanding or skill acquisition than before is something that we all can do. It's not a genetic barrier instance for almost everything. And there's no natural ability. It really comes from practice. Here are some examples in society, for instance. Almost every year, every couple of years, we seem to have new records being set. From marathons, to high dives, to musicians, to memory champions. And what they're doing is they're taking these old methods and they're getting rid of them. And trying new ones. And I think we need to do this more in medicine and especially in medical education. We've sort of stagnated on a traditional platform, a traditional mentality for so long. And luckily, over the past few years, I think we're starting to gain a little insight about what learning actually is and how to improve it and 
combining our medical education efforts with cognitive psychologists and others that really understand how learning and improvement work better. So in case you haven't checked out our previous podcast on deliberate practice, and if you haven't read our book, read this before medical school, and if you haven't read Anders Ericsson's book, Peak, then here is a quick summation of what the steps are in deliberate practice. And then we'll go into more detail about why this works so well and what the science has shown in other areas of the field. So the first step really is to set your goals, to have purposeful goals too, not just because I want to or because someone told me that I need to. What is the reason behind the goal? What is your ultimate goal? What are you really trying to strive for <laughs> is what I'm getting at. And once you have that endpoint in mind, which I think we also covered in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Med Students episode recently, keeping that endpoint in mind is one of the seven habits. You'll notice a lot of these books have some similarities, have some overlap. This also overlaps with flow, which we covered in last episode. But having that purpose, having that goal, now you can find pathways to reach that goal. No one tackles Mount Everest and says, all right, I'm just going to climb until I find the peak. They see where the peak is and they map out pathways and alternative pathways in case this one happens to be blocked or an avalanche happens or whatever other obstacle gets in their way. And we need to do the same thing. We need to pick our point and then find multiple paths to get there. The next one is attention. Obviously, we have to be focused on it. We have to be attentive to it. We can't let distractions get in our way, make us inefficient, and prevent us from reaching our goals. So being very attentive to the task at hand, taking the first step towards that end goal, is what needs to be on your mind, not what's on TV tonight, not what's for dinner, not, oh, did that person text me? I need to check my phone now. But you also need some type of immediate feedback. Without that feedback, you have no idea if that first step you took is correct. We're taking the Mount Everest example, that metaphor. If you take your first step and you fall through a cavern, you're not going to keep taking more steps. You're going to backtrack, try to get out of that cavern, and then find an alternative path. But if you didn't know that you fell into that cavern, then you're going to keep walking forward, walk into a wall. So you need feedback on whatever tasks you're doing right now to make sure it's actually going to reach the goal that you've set. You need to get out of your comfort zone as well. You need to push to new challenges, new heights. Try adding a little bit of difficulty or try adding the same task in a new way. And that is going to help your progression in whatever task or academic project you have going on. If you stay doing the same thing all the time, you're not going to improve as fastly. You might not improve at all. That's what plateauing is. You don't see people at the gym recommend doing the same exercises every day. They say, do this routine for this week and then switch it up next week. And then the following week, you can go back or you can try this third routine. And by constantly changing things up, you're adding new difficulty, new skill level, new levels of processing the information that you're being fed, and new levels of feedback. And then finally, if you are stuck or you just really want to reach a higher level quicker, the most important thing you can do is find someone that knows it better than you. Learn from them. Match them. Okay, now those are all topics that we've really covered before, so let's take a further look into what these mean and how it's been demonstrated in the research that was conducted. And actually, we should probably start on some of the inefficiencies in our current system, both in medicine and society in general. And that's the concept of those that 
can do and those that can't teach. And that's just completely wrong. <laughs> that is so backwards. And that's probably why we have such issues with learning and with education in our country. Those that can need to teach. That is the only way to help the next generation, to make them better. We need more educators. We need more preceptors in medicine. We need more people that know what they're doing. Because if you're leaving it up to the bottom of the barrel, so you say, those that can't do, why are they the ones teaching? That's not going to help the learner reach the next step of improvement nearly as fast or as proficiently as they would with someone that's very knowledgeable. There were actually studies done on doctors regarding this to some degree, and it really showed that there's a disconnect in medicine and medical education with knowledge acquisition and skills acquisition. And knowledge acquisition is what traditional school is about and what the basic sciences are about. They emphasize knowledge, but they don't really help you with any performance aspect that's important in medicine. They also don't focus on performance improvements. So they can teach us all of this knowledge, all of this book smarts, and then once we get into the hospital, we're supposed to learn so much of the skill aspect very quickly. But interestingly, studies have shown that our performance as physicians actually decreases over time anyway. So we focus so many years on knowledge acquisition, and then we focus a lot of years, particularly in residency, on the skills acquisition, and just getting very, very proficient very, very quickly there, and then it kind of drops off. And a lot of that's probably because the didactic CMEs have not really proven any benefit in long-term knowledge acquisition or performance training. And a lot of physicians also don't have a great way to receive feedback from their community. And once you're already a physician, it might even be difficult to know what your next goal is. For many, they've sort of reached that point that they were going for. So automatically, we're seeing that many of the steps of deliberate practice, the goal setting, the feedback, the proper training, uh, focusing on where our weak points are, which we don't know because we're not receiving proper training and feedback, are missing from continuing education in the medical field and in the pre-med and other aspects of healthcare education as well. Dr. Erickson also notes that really, you know, knowledge is easier to test, so that's why schools basically test on it. And skills training should replace knowledge training as soon as possible, which is kind of interesting since we just recently switched where the clinical skills test has been removed from the board exams. So even the little bit that we were getting before, granted there are many inefficiencies in it, is now gone. So we're missing out on potentially a very key aspect here, which is really going to limit most students to not learning this skills acquisition until residency. They also looked at several different types of exams that students were taking and noticed that there is no link between exam scores and better patient outcomes. So I have noticed that in the past too, and that is definitely a reason why I agree with this step one moving past fail. It's not testing any outcome that's actually important to patients and to healthcare. The only outcome it seemed to be testing was that a student is good at taking tests, which is good for residency accreditation purposes so they can maintain their residency, but it doesn't help any other aspect of healthcare that we really should be focusing on. All right, so getting back to some of these doctors that were tested, and in particular, they were looking at surgeons and noted that the mental representations that certain surgeons had seemed to be more developed than others. And what this means is just their concept of the material, whether it be 
conceptually or visually or pattern recognition or just knowing how to handle certain problems that arise that were unexpected initially can be stronger than others. And having those with stronger mental representations, teaching those or monitoring those with weaker mental representations really improve the outcomes of all the other physicians as well. This is why peer mentorship can be really helpful once you're already in the graduate level, once you're a practicing physician, once you're an attending. And that's not always easy to find. So I'm glad to see that this seems to be picking up a little bit more in recent years, but I think a lot more can be done to make sure that even those that have been in practice for many years can still grow and still learn and improve. There were some other studies done in military training as well with technique called adaptive thinking, which really, it seemed like it allowed military personnel to think outside the box, to anticipate possible negative outcomes in some sort of war game, for instance, let's say. And even if they didn't anticipate it, those that had some of this deliberate practice type training, this active thinking training, were able to overcome obstacles much better. They were able to mold themselves to the environment to deal with unexpected consequences and to push forward and progress much better. And I think we can do that too as learners. We focus on our weak points and try to predict to some degree what obstacles might arise or at least understanding what obstacles are in front of us right now instead of just running into the obstacle over and over and over again. Analyzing what is holding us up now can lead to some self-reflection and some learning in other ways that can't even be quantified. Something that's reiterated in Anders Ericsson's book often and constantly is just that there is no natural ability. Deliberate practice is for everyone and anyone that wants to create their own potential. I really like that phrase. And actually, if you go to a star athlete and say, oh, you're a natural athlete, they might get a little upset. Like, really? I'm natural? Why do you think I spend eight hours a day practicing? Many more hours than all my colleagues. That's why I'm the best, not because it's natural. So don't ever mix up natural or genetic abilities with hard practice, with proper technique and monitoring of what's going on and how to improve on what you're running across right now. But I think one of the hardest parts about deliberate practice for students, and myself included, is once you plateau, finding out what that weakness is. Sometimes you can take an assessment, take a quiz, take a practice test on one of the banks, and you'll notice that you're getting certain questions wrong more than others, but that doesn't necessarily enlighten you as to why you're getting those wrong. Is it a knowledge error? Is it a testing error? Is it one of the other types of errors that we cover in the book? And this is really where some sort of tutor or mentor can come in beneficial. And it can be hard to find one too. You want to make sure that you have an instructor that knows and can help you reach your goals. So you need to know what your goal is, and explain it to them up front. And you might need to try out a couple of them. Maybe they just don't have the ability to get you there. Or maybe they do, but not in the way that you want or need. So finding someone that knows more about you, and once you reach their level, you find another person that knows more than you, and try to reach their level, and continue, continue, continue. And that's where expertise comes from. That's where mastery comes from. Being the best is never stopping, always progressing, but also in a beneficial manner, not getting overwhelmed, making sure to tackle things bit by bit, manageable chunks, just slightly pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and then getting good at that. 
in that zone. Now, he does go into a lot of other things that we could discuss, but I would really recommend you reading the book. It's Peak by Anders Ericsson. It goes into how to create an expert. So there's a whole story about how a family took their daughter Susan and made her a chess champion. And this is back when women weren't really considered smart enough to play chess, so it was already outside the box to train your daughter versus your son to train in chess, to become a chess master. And then she ended up being a champion. And there are techniques for teachers to learn here as well. And there are different stages where sometimes you have to get the students or your child or whatever the subject might be to a certain stage. And then they have to take it from there on their own and really make it an internal process. And that's where you're at. You need to make it an internal process. You need to be self-directed in these topics and discover what your weaknesses are, set your goals, make sure to get the appropriate feedback, make sure to find someone that can help you out when you get stumped, whether that be in person or online, on a forum, and really just try to reach slight improvements day by day. These aren't going to be huge strides. They don't happen overnight, but little incremental progress over time is the way for great achievement. And before I leave you today, I did want to say you probably noticed there have been a lot of narrative episodes by me lately. And if you have any guests that would like to come on, I would really like to talk to them, talk to you. So please reach out medicalnemonist at gmail or on social media. You can find myself, Chase DeMarco, or Medical Nemonist, or a lot of other things. If you type it in, you'll find it. Don't worry. But we do want to have more guests on, get some more opinions, some more expert advice, and really help you learn from the material. So with that, I'll leave you, and I'll see you next week. The Medical Mnemonist Podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, including USMLE tutoring and residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time. 